chapter 4. And we're going to read verses 34 and 35. A very familiar passage in which a humbled Nebuchadnezzar, a great king, makes his confession of the lesson which God taught him by his strange providences. He says, uh, the words of Nebuchadnezzar, but at the end of that period, I, Nebuchadnezzar, raised my eyes toward heaven, and my reason returned to me, and I blessed the Most High and praised and honored him who lives forever. For his dominion is an everlasting dominion, and his kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing, but he does according to his will in the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. And no one can ward off his hand or say to him, what have you done? Well, my subject for our meditation this morning is the sovereignty of God. It is a theme which we need to dwell on frequently. The world in which we live tries to undermine this truth by the unbelief which the evil one seeks to reinforce in a multitude of ways. People today regard God as irrelevant, God as absent, um, but, uh, and this is one of the atmospheres that we breathe as we live in this world. And this is why the, the, the truths and practices of the Christian religion need to be reinforced frequently. No, I, I, I look out at your faces. I know that you are, you know this doctrine, you know the sovereignty of God. I, I hope that God will deepen it in us because it's being, it's challenged at every level of society. And so uh, I'll, I'll use the example of Paul, who's unembarrassed to write the words of Philippians 3, 1. I'll just read it to you. Finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord a common known duty. Paul says, to write the same things again is no trouble to me, and it is a safeguard for you. So the repetition is good. Paul is, is reflecting on this earlier in, the, in chapter 2, verse 18. He says, you too, I urge you, rejoice in the same way and share your joy with me. So Paul says Christians know that they should rejoice in the Lord, but yet it's good to be reminded periodically of the same important duty. The repetition is not needless. It's not frivolous. It's important. It's, uh, it is one of those important duties which is necessary for our good and for us to be able to honor God. Indeed, many of our most important duties require frequent repetition. Peter speaks in the same vein in his letter. Uh, and I just read a couple of verses from 1 Peter, 2 Peter 1, 12 
13, 15, Peter says, therefore, I will always be ready to remind you of these things, even though you already know them and have been established in the truth, which is present with you. I consider it right, as long as I am in this earthly dwelling, to stir you up by way of reminder. And I will also be diligent at any time after my departure, you will be able to call these things to mind. Very uh, telling, very eloquent are the words of Paul to Timothy, that good man of God who was left in charge of the church at Ephesus when uh, when Paul tells him in 2 Timothy 2.8, remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, descendant of David according to my gospel. Oh, think about that. Timothy's a man who knows Jesus Christ. He's a minister of the gospel, and yet Paul tells him, remember, remember. These reminders are important. And he tells Timothy in the same letter to remind the people of God of these things. He says, remind them of these things. So, uh, what I'm doing here, before we get to the subject of sovereignty, is I'm, 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 I'm saying why we ought to frequently come back and be reminded of things that we already know. A good, healthful ministry employs reminders of known, known uh, biblical doctrine. So this morning, we're going to meditate on the sovereignty of God. Fundamental, revealed truth of, of religion. Uh, which you know, but I'm going to remind you, and I'm going to try to deepen our grasp of this. Now, those of us who have been brought up in the United States of America have a distinct disadvantage when it comes to the concept of sovereignty. I know that some of you have been brought up in countries where the monarchy is important, right? But in America, we have a disadvantage with the idea of sovereignty. Our form of government is based on uh, elected officials and their authority to rule is based on the consent of the governed. We vote for our president. We vote for our uh, our elected officials. This is what is known as the social contract theory, that the right of the governors is based upon the consent of the governed. And that, that makes a tremendous difference in the way in which we view authority. Um, but the concept of, of sovereignty, the concept of sovereignty belongs to the concept of kingship. Sovereignty is the rule of a king, which he exercises with the highest authority. Uh, we don't, at least I'll, I'll speak for Americans in being brought up in this country. Uh, I, I'm very much aware of the way people view their leaders and, uh, Americans are very independent. Liberty is the key word of America, right? And nobody's going to tell me what to do. That's the, that's the attitude, the cocky, unbiblical attitude of people towards authorities. So the issue of sovereignty. 
The issue of kingly authority is who is in charge? Who is in charge? That's the concept of sovereignty. And according to our initial text, Daniel 4, 34 and 35, is where God made this clear to a king, to a sovereign. And remember, um, the word of Nebuchadnezzar was absolute. When he wanted everyone to worship his idol that he had set up, that huge idol, and he had the music played, I don't know what, uh, I guess they were live bands, not, not speakers, not MP3s. But when he had the music played, everyone was to fall down and worship the idol. And his word was absolute. So when the three sons of Israel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego didn't bet and he told them, you know what? I, I have a, a fiery furnace here for you. And you're going to bow down like I tell you to, or you're going to go. Nobody was there to say, hey, wait a minute. Nebuchadnezzar, you think this is really right? Doesn't matter. He's a sovereign. He has absolute authority. And what God told him is, well, you don't actually have absolute authority, Nebuchadnezzar. There is the Most High who rules in heaven and on earth. This is the message that God purposed and used to humble this earthly king. He told him, you're going to lose your sanity. You're going to be, your sovereignty is going to be removed until you recognize that the most high, not you, the most high above you, he is the one who is the ruler of mankind and he bestows sovereignty on whom he wishes. But of course, Nebuchadnezzar, didn't pay attention, even though it was Daniel who told him this and interpreted the dream. Nebuchadnezzar didn't pay attention. Twelve months later, God brought this dream to pass, and you know, the king was told, sovereignty has been removed from you. So as you know the story. His sanity was removed. He was driven away until God taught him the vital lesson. And this is a very interesting thing. I was asking myself as I was studying this passage, how did God do this? What was it about the period of insanity? Was there something going on in his mind that deepened his understanding of what Daniel had told him? Well, it's mysterious. It's mysterious how Nebuchadnezzar learned these truths from insanity, but he did. When he awoke from his uh, period of temporary insanity, one fact impressed the mind of this great king he said, there is the Most High. He rules over the kingdoms of the earth. No one challenges Jehovah. Just like no one in the nation challenged Nebuchadnezzar, there was another one who was higher, and nobody challenges him. Nobody can ward off his hand. You know, it's like a, it's like a child in the kitchen, and mom is making cookies for company that's coming over, and the child goes to reach out for a cookie, and mom... Snatches back his hand. What are you doing? What do you think you're doing? Well, that's what nobody ever does to God. Nobody ever slaps back his hand, pulls back his hand. Nobody says to him, what are you doing? This is sovereignty. This is the sovereignty of God. Now, this was a truth, important truth for Nebuchadnezzar and for his testimony to his nation. Um, you, you read the commentators who asked the question, was Nebuchadnezzar regenerated? Was he saved? And 
you can you can read what they have to say. He died in uh, 562, and uh, perhaps God will settle all those questions when we are in glory and see who is there and who is not, who is on the left and who is on the right. This was a truth for Nebuchadnezzar, an important truth. It was an important truth for Israel to understand that God is the most high. And it's true, Nebuchadnezzar had destroyed Jerusalem. He had brought the, the people of God captive. But they needed to understand as well that God most high is over all of the kingdoms of the earth. And this is what we need to remember as well. There is the Most High. He rules over everything. You wonder, you wonder about Kim Jong-un. You wonder about uh, uh, Vladimir Putin. You worry about others. And, and look, we know this. They have risen and they have fallen. And there is the Most High. That's what we need to remember. So uh, this sovereignty is the foundation of a doctrine called the doctrine of providence. God rules and God governs all of the events of history. I'm going to summarize it for you. These are not my words. These are words that were published in the 1600s. But here is, here is a summary of the doctrine of providence. It is, it is sovereignty applied to history. And this is what, what, it, what the Bible teaches. God, the good creator of all things, in his infinite power and wisdom, upholds, directs, disposes, and governs all creatures and things, from the greatest even to the least, by his most wise and holy providence, to the purpose for which they were created, according to his infallible foreknowledge, and the free and immutable counsel of his own will, to the praise of the glory of his wisdom, power, Justice, infinite goodness, and mercy. I know it's a big mouthful, but what it's saying is God is most high. And God rules over all history. He rules over all of the events of all of his creatures. As I said, this uh, doctrine of the sovereignty of God, the providence of God, is a message not only for the powerful pagan king, it was a message for the people of Israel. I'd like you to turn to Isaiah chapter 46. Now we're going to see how this doctrine is revealed and amplified and applied. It's applied to the people of Israel. Isaiah 46. You will remember that the people of Israel were being warned about their unfaithfulness to God in their worship and their thinking what's happening in the nations. And they were going to go into captivity if they didn't repent. And God, uh, God tells the people of Israel how he wants them to think. Isaiah 46, 3. Listen to me, O house of Jacob, and all the remnant of the house of Israel. You who have been born by me from birth and have been carried from the womb, even to your old age I will be the same, and even to your graying hairs, I will bear you. I have done it. I will carry you. I will bear you. And I will deliver you. So this is what God says to these people. And then down in verse 9, he tells them, Remember the former things long past. For I am God and there is no other. 
I am God and there is no one like me, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things which have not been done, saying my purpose will be established and I will accomplish all my good pleasure. This is what God wants the people of Israel to understand. That God plans and God executes his holy will and the people of Israel are to remember this is God. He plans and he does. He announces and he does. And this is uh, what, what the result of this is, is that the people of Israel, when they embrace this, they worship God and they have confidence in God. For the sake of time, I'm going to um, I'm going to read a number of texts. I'll tell you what they are, but I'm not going to wait for you to turn so you can write them down if you wish. Uh, next text I want to read to you is from Psalm 115 verses 1 through 3. How does the sovereignty of God impact the people of God and particularly in their worship? And you understand, brethren, that uh, when we grasp the sovereignty of God, that the first thing we need to do is to worship God in the confidence that what he has revealed is true and it brings worship. So this is what the this is what the believing saints in the Old Testament, how they worship a sovereign God. They say this, not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name give glory. We don't say, well, look, I've learned a lot about God. I know that God is sovereign. And, you know, I, I, I put my thumb under lapels and say, look at me. I know that God is sovereign. I remember when I was a very young Christian. Uh, listening to my aunt preach about uh, what he called nasty Calvinists, people who were cocky about what they knew about God. And it was a, in their, a feather in their cap, as they say, right? But look at, look at this disposition of the people of God who understood that God is sovereign, not unto us, not unto us, but to your name give glory because of your loving kindness. I know your King James in Psalm 115 uh, has uh, the word mercy, but it's the word, it's the word uh, loving, covenant loving kindness. Because of your loving kindness, because of your truth. Why should the nation say where now is their God? But our God is in the heavens and he does whatever he pleases. That's sovereignty. That's providence. That's how you think of God and worship God. Then in Psalm 119, verse 68, again, the psalmist worships God. David worships God with this confession. What, what kind of a God is this sovereign God? He says, you are good and do good. Teach me your statutes. So it's safe to worship God and to bow before him and to submit yourself to him. You're good. You do good. You have absolute power and everything you do is good. When I get sick, you're good. When I lose my job, you're good. When I am oppressed, you're good. And you do good. And therefore, what do I want to know? Teach me your statutes. Show me the way that you wish me to walk. To walk. Again, in Psalm 145, 9, the Lord is good to all. And his mercies are over all his works. 
So even when the sovereignty of God presses into my life and makes my life, what I would say, inconvenient, you know, when the ungodly have troubles in their life, they're, they're cursing God. Why does God do this to me? But the believer is bowing before God and still confessing the Lord is good to all and his mercies are over all his works. It's interesting how the Apostle Paul, you remember when he went to Mars Hill and spoke to the uh, Athenian philosophers, he wasn't intimidated by their intellect. He wasn't intimidated by their atheism. He wasn't intimidated by their paganism. Here's how he addresses them in Acts 17, 24 to 28. He says, the God who made the world and all things in it, since he is Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made with hands, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all people life and breath and all things. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on the face of the earth, having determined their appointed times and the boundaries of their habitation that they should seek for God, if perhaps they might, they grope for him and find him, though he is not far from each one of us, for in him we live and move and exist, even as some of your own prophets have said. So what does he say to the atheists? He says, you think you have God in a box. Remember that Paul had gone through Athens and uh, he saw all of these temples. There was a, there was a statement in one of the uh, people of the time that it was easier to find a God in Athens than it was to find a man. Because they had all of these idols, many idols. And they thought, well, you know what? Uh, we can control God. We build a box, we put God in the box, and then we've got God in our neighborhood. And we determine God. Paul, Paul says, you've got it all wrong. God doesn't need you. You don't have God. God is the one who puts you in your box so that you live where God lives and God's purpose is that you might seek him and find him. Most of you know, I think, that I grew up in Brownsville. 336 Blake Avenue was the first address I wrote down in my school papers. Uh, why there? God determined that's where I would live. God's appointed our, our, our places. He's appointed everything we do. He is absolutely sovereign. And this, of course, is the truth for the church. It's the church that is to understand that God is sovereign in his eternal purposes. Uh, you, if you want, you could turn to Ephesians 1. Look at a couple of things in Ephesians 1 very briefly. Ephesians chapter 1 and verse... 11 is my first text, very important text about the sovereignty of God, especially for the church, for us Christians. God is sovereign in his eternal purposes. Just as Paul said to the Athenians, God's the one who was appointed where you will live and how you will seek him. So for the church, God is sovereign in his eternal purposes. And this is what he says in Ephesians 1.11, in him. It is in Christ. Also, we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to his purpose, 
who works all things after the counsel of his will. So God is controlling everything, all the circumstances of our lives, every event that happens. They, we have things that surprise us. Someone knocks off the door and they're there for some purpose. And they tell me, I'm surprised. God's not surprised. God has planned and purposed it all. He works all things after the counsel of his will. Think of all the details of your life. If you had an opportunity to write down for your children and your grandchildren and their children, the things of your life and the way God has dealt with you, you can say, God has determined all the circumstances of my life. And you might remember events that happened at one time to you mysterious. God planned them all. God brought them to pass. He is absolutely sovereign. And Christ, according to Ephesians 1, 20 to 22, is Lord of all the powers of heaven and earth for the well-being of his church. Look at, this, look at these words in Ephesians 1, 20. He's, he's talking about what God has brought about in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and every name that is named. You see these uh, these people and these powers and that I'm above you. I remember I had a job in a bank, one of the, my early bank jobs in the 90s, 1990s. And uh, there was a guy who came, a, a woman who came up and she had, been appointed to a particular position of thing, and she says, "You are you are mine. All these people in this department, yeah, we're yours. We serve you." And that was her idea. She was above; we were below. Okay, no problem. But you see, what Paul is saying that Christ is above, and He is above all rule, all authority, all power, all dominion, every name that is named. Not only in this age, but the age to come. That's the way we need to see our Lord Jesus Christ. He's seated at God's right hand. Psalm 110, God said, sit at my right hand until I make all your enemies the footstool for your feet. He has absolute authority. And unto what purpose? Verse 22, well, many things we could say, but verse 22, he put all things in subjection under his feet, gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. So Christ is above all things. He has that position of sovereign authority and he is given as head of the church. So what happens to the church? What happens to its members? Think of it in its, uh, in the, its size or smallness, doesn't matter, Christ is head over the church. He's head over all things to the church so that, so that he is able to control all the things that happen to the church. Every incident, every life of all the people of God under his absolute control. It was a uh, interesting video that June and I watched recently. It was a, it was a long video. It's about a, uh, a pilot whose uh, windshield was defective. And after he took off and they reached a certain altitude, the, the windshield of the main pilot flew off the plane and he was sucked out the window and he didn't die. Although he was thousands of feet up, uh, he 
was able to uh, survive, and the co-pilot was able to have control of the plane. Christ has absolutely control, absolute control over all of the events of our lives and over the church. He's head over all things for the church. So that the church is under his great care. It is, it is mysterious. Um, it reminds me of the words that William Cooper wrote in hymn number 21. I do want to look at that for you very briefly. This is, a, this, is, this is what we're learning about in the sovereignty of God. So there are a lot of things that happen in the life of the church that make us scratch our heads. You may wonder sometimes, what is God doing? Well, God is doing his holy will. He's ruling over the church for his good. He's controlling everything that happens. It's definitely mysterious. Listen to William Cooper. William Cooper uh, went through a lot of trials in his life. Friend of John Newton. And he wrote this, this verse, these verses in, some, in hymn 21. God moves in a mysterious way his wonders to perform. He plants his footsteps in the sea and rides upon the storm. Deep in unfathomable minds of never failing skill, he treasures up his bright designs and works his sovereign will. What happens? The sovereign will of God as he controls our lives and our difficulties we become fearful. Ye fearful saints, fresh courage take. The clouds ye so much dread are big with mercy and shall break in blessings on your head. Judge not the Lord by feeble sense, but trust him for his grace. Behind a frowning providence, he hides a smiling face. So circumstances come, and they seem to be dark, and nothing but trouble seems to be coming. It's not so. Behind a frowning province, he hides a smiling face. His purposes will ripen fast, unfolding every hour. The bud may have a bitter taste, but sweet will be the flower. Blind unbelief is sure to err and scan his work in vain. God is his own interpreter. And he will make it plain. I was asked by a friend of mine if uh, there would be regrets in heaven. I think re regrets belong to earth. There are no regrets in heaven. There's going to be nobody in heaven who's going to have a complaint. Lord, you know, I've been wondering about this event in my life. Uh, and I'd like you to, you know, to explain it to me. Nobody's going to be complaining. Nobody's going to be sad. Nobody's going to say, I regret this. I regret that. Regrets are part of our very fallible view of our circumstances. But you understand this doctrine of God's sovereignty and God's providence. And let me tell you, deep breath in, you can sweep the doubts aside. God is in control. Absolute control over all of our circumstances and all of his dealings with 
us as individual Christians and as a church. So this is the doctrine of God's sovereignty that we need to dwell upon and rest in because our Savior is on the throne and he's head over all things for his church. Let's pray and thank him for these wonderful truths. Our Father in heaven, we, we are very grateful that you have not only taken sovereign control of heaven and earth, but you have taught us to trust in you and to rest in you and to believe in you. And we do ask, Lord, that this day as we turn to scripture after scripture, and as we uh, learn the lessons of the passages we will look at in the morning and in the evening, we ask our God that you would strengthen our confidence in you. Help us, our Father, to remember that though the way may sometimes seem dark, yet you are in control, and you are good, and you do good, and your tender mercies are over all your works. So teach us and humble us so that we will embrace this great doctrine of your sovereignty, your absolute sovereignty. Hear our prayer and bless us in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.